Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hey, Guy, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Looking forward to today. I've actually been very lazy. I haven't really done any research because I've known Hugh for a very, very long time ah. and worked with him quite a lot. So, uh, Although our relationship was actually always more social than work-related. He tended to use the Welshman. The what? Is that your local pub or something? The Welshman. No, Pino Palladino. Oh, he used the Welshman. (laughs) He used the Welshman. He'd use the Welshman in the studio and then come and hang out with me after. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Of course, one of the greatest music producers, record producers of all time, specifically concentrated in those early 80s periods with uh, Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins, Genesis, XTC, Police. And, and I feel this probably contributed to his success greatly. He worked on the Spandau Ballet album Journeys to Glory, our first album. Well, absolutely. I want to get to this, because when they did Peter Gabriel's third album, which, of course, where the famous drum sound comes from, it was produced by Steve Lillywhite, engineered by Hugh Padgham, and assisted by Howard Gray, all three of them. You know, the townhouse back then was insane. The townhouse, the townhouse studio. studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shepherd's Bush, yeah. Yeah, but also four Grammys. He's won four Grammys for, for his production. He's one of the most famous producers. He's got lots of stories to tell of how these albums were made the horrific behaviour of rock stars I'm sure oh, I'm sure it'll be plenty let's get him on welcome to the Rock on Tours. okay guys I'm ready this was great guys I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this that's well, a big tune for sure I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner of course I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back you know what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good man I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London they're brilliant I know you're musicians but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists remember me I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. 
Good morning. Welcome, Hugh. Oh, he takes a bite of his toast. That's the level of respect. Have you got Hugh compression on that toast? Podcast. No, but I have got EQ on it. <laughs> we, we must say up front that we have to be careful that, you know, we're not a podcast for producer geeks you know we are lovers of great music are out there listening and we have to just preempt everything we say like the word compression and all of that bollocks with what it actually is i fear not everyone knows that yeah we can't just say oh yeah use the eventide and then move on because (laughs) what is that piece of art behind you it looks like a fragment of an xtc album cover is that well it's actually a favorite artist of mine called ellsworth kelly Ah. do you know ellsworth kelly I don't know. The name sounds sort of familiar, but no, I'd be lying, Mm. if I'm honest. Yeah, no, it it could be from Drums and Wires or something, couldn't it, cover? (laughs) (laughs) Drums and Wires, yeah. You've just reminded me of something, because you are quite the art man. I remember, because the first time we worked together, when we met, in fact, on the Dream Academy album, I found out about a Heath Robinson sale going on somewhere. And you dispatched me down there to get you something. And I bought myself, and I still have to this day, I have a Heath Robinson. And I just had to pick you any random Heath Robinson. Yeah, you did. I think you picked me three. I've still got them too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you get three, I get one. That's close. I'm the bass player, you're the producer. (laughs) Yeah. Was that really the first time we met? The Dream Academy album, yeah, it was. Okay. And that was only because oh. I'd elbowed my way in, because you'd hired Peter Gabriel's band, not surprisingly, because, you know, as far as you knew, it was just the three of them. There was no band. And I just said, absolutely no way. I'm playing bass on this. Great. What yeah. a fortuitous thing to do. Thank you for well, elbowing your way in. <laughs> Who was Gabriel's <laughs> bass player at that Well, it was point. Tony Levin. I got Tony Levin kicked off. So, Go off, of course. Sorry. But, you know, this is 1986, man. Tony Levin would have just said yes to one of the 900 things he was saying no to currently. So I don't feel bad about that. Yeah. yeah. Hugh, I just want to begin where your career obviously went up a gear and everything changed for you. And that's with Spandau Ballet's Journeys <laughs> to Glory, right? It's what launched my career. <laughs> Because <laughs> I just remember, and I do remember you engineering on some of those tracks, and I can't remember where it was. We were obviously Must at the townhouse, townhouse at that yeah. point. It wasn't. It was at well, the manor. No, it was oh, at the manor. We did a week at the manor house, which was a residential studio owned by Richard Branson, yeah. made Oxford, famous right? by Tubular Bells. Made famous by Tubular Bells. Yeah. Exactly. Do you remember any of it? I do. Weirdly enough, tell us the horror story. <laughs> Richard Burgess was at the controls, wasn't he? Yeah, he was producing. producing. I guess I was at the controls. He was producing. But I think he quite liked to sort of take, if I remember rightly, I think he liked to think he was engineer as well. He was everything. Drummer, engineer, producer. Yeah, Yeah, he was the drummer of landscape, wasn't he? He had the first electronic drum kit ever in the country, apparently. No, he was a really innovative guy. He was from New Zealand, wasn't he? And I mean, I'm sure he's still doing landscape and stuff, but... I haven't spoken to him for, for years. They were on Tomorrow's World, weren't they? I don't know if it's on, on YouTube somewhere, but it was brilliant they, because it was so mad and modern and crazy what they were doing that they actually were featured on Tomorrow's World. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. really? But it, was so, it looks really quaint now. I remember seeing a clip and it was doing things like putting a trombone through a wah-wah pedal. Like, oh my god! <laughs> They're probably the second only other musicians to have been on Tomorrow's World, apart from Rolf Harris and, and, and his stylophone. 
Well, we don't mention Rolf Harris anymore. No, but the stylophone was the world's first commercially available synthesizer. True. I have three. (laughs) Good luck with those. chords. Yes. I tell you what I remember most about the manor sessions was the studio was in a separate building to the house, so you had to go into the house to make a cup of tea or eat and stuff like that. I remember going in the back door to the kitchen once and Tony Hadley was there doing scales, singing scales, warming himself up because it yeah. was, it was quite a good sort of echoey sound in that room. <laughs> yeah, he still does it to this day. I know he does. You know. <laughs> I remember, what I remember about you, Hugh, is you were very well-spoken, you were very tall and trustworthy. You were more intelligent than us, for, for sure. <laughs> you know, I don't think I'd really mixed with people, dare I say, of your class. Oh, or, God, don't you know, uh, I think, you know, you know, we were working class lads. I think there was an intelligence about your approach that maybe I hadn't seen in the other places I'd ever worked in and studios I'd ever worked in. And I think that sort of intelligence and your demeanour is what drew a lot of artists towards you, I think. Because what a producer has to do is comfort the band exactly. in many ways, is, is to be the dad in the studio. Well, the nice dad, you know, the, the guy who's going to really see them through these troubled waters into making a beautiful record. Yeah, that's very kind of you to say that. No, I like to think that I'm sort of producer that aids and abets and works with a band to get what they're looking for as opposed to a sort of Phil Spector type of character who was sort of bigger than the band in that sense. Well, there's two things I would say to you, is that A, also the fact that you have a proper engineering background and so you can literally physically make the record rather than telling people what it should be. And also, you have a great eye or ear for spotting musicians. Dominic Miller, for instance. Well, yes, I've always felt when I see a good musician, I sort of lock onto it. I mean, I've always been really lucky in the sense that when I, you know, I started off at this studio called AdVision, which doesn't exist anymore. It was just off Great Portland Street. And that was a pretty serious studio that had, you know, famous rock bands of the time. We're talking early 70s here. In fact, you worked with Shell Tell Me there, didn't you? I did. I mean, I was only a tape hop then, but I remember the session. And um, actually, no, I don't, because I don't remember who the artist was, but I remember him because everybody warned me as I was the tape hop stroke T-boy that his sight wasn't very good and that if I bought in a cup of tea, I had to make sure that he sort of saw it and picked it up properly. But I wish I do remember what session it was, but your raconteurs on Shell Tell Me was really interesting, I thought, and what an amazing guy he was and worked, you know, with all my sort of favourite bands growing up, really. But I think what Guy's alluding to, and and I would agree with this, is that you're the musician's producer. You know, and when I was in my early 20s buying records, if I saw your name on a record, I knew it had quality, but it had musicianship as well, and a commerciality. You know, it's not like you're just producing Weather Report or something. (laughs) So... It would be really great to start with an album from you that we all know and everybody knows before we sort of go back and to to find out what really turned you on. Just to sort of show people 
the strength of what you do. And I suppose 1980s uh, Peter Gabriel 3 album, which I think gets called Melt now for some reason, yeah. for the cover, is a good start because it, it really changed the approach to music in the 80s. And I remember having that album and, and having the first CD, you know, and couldn't believe the quality of mm. it. You were engineering that, though, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I'd sort of formed uh, an alliance with Steve Lillywhite because we're exactly the same age. In fact, I'm one month exactly older than him. And he came into the townhouse soon after the townhouse had opened, which was, I guess I met him early 79. I think we opened it in late 78. And the first session I ever did there was with Derek and Clive. Come on! <laughs> Come on! <laughs> Peter Cook and Dudley Moore to anyone who doesn't know who Derek and Clive was. Yeah, there's video of that, isn't there? Yeah, there is a whole video. Yeah. 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 Oh, my God. Were you not pissing yourself the whole way through well, that? I was, yeah. It was fascinating. But do you know what? I mean, we're slightly going off tack here, but we did three or four days recording at the townhouse. Then I went to the manor again. Everything was on analogue tape then, and I had to edit three or four days worth of information on my own with Peter. And it took us just over two weeks, it was. And nowadays you could edit that stuff on Pro Tools in about, you know, half a day probably. But we had like bits of tape hanging all around the control room. So are you talking about Peter Cook? Peter Cook, sorry, not Peter Gabriel. Yes. Peter Cook. Oh, so everything oh, that wow. album was absolutely, it was manic. <laughs> And Peter started drinking at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And so by lunchtime, he'd already had a bottle of white wine, Blue Nun or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I oh, so assumed, automatically thought you were talking about Peter Gabriel when you were talking oh, about... Oh, no, Peter. no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're on Derek and Clive. My brain is always going at a million miles now, but it's much more important probably to talk about Peter Gabriel. And so anyway, going back, I, I um, had done one, if not two XTC records with Steve Lillywhite, who Fantastic. arrived at the townhouse as the new boy producer on the block. And um, we did two records with XTC, who are still one of my favorite bands I ever worked with. Unbelievably talented and great band. And um, we obviously piqued the interest of Peter Gabriel. And one day Steve and I were working together and he says, you know, but guess what? I've just got a call from Peter Gabriel's manager, who was a lady called Gail Colson at the yeah. time, who you probably know. Yeah. And um, I mean, I was like so chuffed because I grew up absolutely adoring Genesis. When I say grew up at school in my teens, and so to end up working with one of my heroes was um, yeah. the most incredible situation. And of course we did this album all on 24 track analog. And, um, you know, even though I say it myself, it, it does still sound pretty good oh, 40 was, odd years later. For me, that was like Sergeant Pepper. It was absolute game changer to have a record. It was such an important, for certainly a lot of musicians of my generation coming out of that punk thing it, it was absolutely stunning and it even had paul weller on it yes <laughs> i never forget because paul weller was working in studio one that's at right. the townhouse and we were in studio two and um that's how we met and peter's one day said you know would you like to come and play 
guitar on a session. And Paul, I don't think he knew what a session was, so he arrived without a guitar. <laughs> so right. we had to find a guitar for him because he had no idea what a session was. I don't think he obviously just right, right. We would right. have all the equipment there for him. So I think there was a quick call out. Of what track? And through the wire. And it's a killer riff. It's a great riff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did Paul come up with that riff? I think he probably did. I, you know, I can't remember exactly, but I think he did. He was great. What sets this album apart, really, is the, is the drums, because you had some information yeah. right at the beginning, didn't you, that you had to abide to in the arrangement of the album from Peter? Yes, he arrived on day one and said, I don't want any cymbals or hi-hats on this record. And um, everyone thought that was really odd, mostly the drummers, of which there were two, Jerry Marotta and then Phil Collins came in and that's how I first met Phil Collins. But it was so strange to them if they were playing a drum kit that we actually set up fake cymbals made out of cardboard or whatever because they just had to do something with their hands. Well, also for me, I mean, as a bass player, it's like, that's your punctuation. Yes. You know, you know that's yes. like full stop new sentence <laughs> a bit like a conductor with his arms as well because yeah. presumably you're looking at arms and things when you're playing on stage what was his, his reason do you think behind that well do you know what out of all the genesis guys i keep up with peter the most and um i sometimes play tennis with him and he lives literally just down the road from me here in london and i asked him well, it was probably a year ago now. Everything seems like the other day with COVID now, doesn't it? Yeah. But um, I asked him, what was the reasoning behind it? And he said, I honestly promise you, I just woke up that morning and thought of that. It was not premeditated at all. I literally woke up in the morning and I thought, let's do a record without any symbols. My feeling what it could be is, is beginning his love of world music, which of course doesn't have symbols, you right, know, it right. tends to be just the drum sound. Yes, well, maybe that was part of it. I'll ask him about that next time because, yeah, the whole WOMAD thing was a new thing, wasn't it, at that time, or Peter's involvement in it. But, yeah, I mean, he's such a fantastic musician, guy, mm. whatever. He's just um, an amazing one-off, is Peter. And yeah. It's a privilege to know him and have, to have worked with him, really. I think one person who deserves a real shout for that record as well, who might go, is Larry Fast. Yes, absolutely. Because this is pre-Fairlight, right? Fairlight being the sampling synthesizer we've talked about before. You didn't have a Fairlight on that album, did you? Everything was... Do you know what? They were just appearing. Yeah. They were just appearing because Peter's cousin who sadly isn't alive anymore, was the guy who started bringing in these Fairlights from, from Australia. Australia. And there was the Fairlight and the Synclavier, wasn't there? That's right, yeah. And they were very huge and, you know, I mean, they just look like dinosaurs now, don't they? I remember Steve Lillywhite ended up buying one for about 50 grand. That's right, I remember. Up in his years attic. Later, he yeah, said I remember. <laughs> That's the most expensive doorstop I've ever bought. <laughs> well, how many seconds could you actually record on them digitally? Sampled, we called it. Probably oh, two or three seconds. Yeah. I mean, you could At do very low. Eight bits. It was well. eight bits. Yeah. But the Sinclair had a much higher bit rate, but it literally just, I think, it just had a jack output on the back. 
like one jack output for this thing that was like 70 grand. <laughs> yeah. I remember working with the Human League with a Synclavier and and they were a pretty big band at that time. And I remember one day, it was Friday morning, he came in and the thing broke down and he said, well, we might as well come back on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's going to take all day to fix. And that was quite a regular occurrence. So I remember I rang up my girlfriend and we went to Paris for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the third album, that thing, because also, of course, the legendary, which is what made that room famous, like the townhouse the Stone Room Studio 2 drum sound. The thing that defined the 80s more than anything was the drum sound that you came up with. Yeah, and I tell you what, if Peter hadn't woken up that morning and said, can we have no cymbals, that drum sound wouldn't have happened because it was so kind of lively, that room, and echoey. As soon as you... The whole sound of that room was compressing the instruments, the drums, in that instance compress them like mad. That's what gave the sound, really. If you didn't compress the, the mics, it, it, it didn't sound... So I'd say that the compressing is where the quiet stuff is made louder. Yes, the quiet stuff is made louder and, and the louder loud... stuff is made quieter. And if you want to hear that drum sound, that we're talking about in the air tonight. We're talking about in the air tonight and intruder at the beginning. But just going back to the cymbal thing, in this... Oh, yeah, yeah. In the room that sounded so great when you compress the drums if anybody hit a cymbal it just went like that and it spoilt the whole thing and it sounded just terrible it just sounded like a huge sort of mess of treble and so intruder which was the song that is the first rendition of, of that sound you know phil came up with this drum pattern and um the same within the air tonight there's no symbols on it at all. And people would come to specially use that room at the yeah. townhouse for the drum sound. And then they were disappointed or didn't realise that they couldn't play symbols in there. So to get that sound, if you really did want symbols as accents or whatever, you basically had to overdub them. And we tried working with bands that would put sort of a cardboard hut around the hi-hat so it didn't sort of leak out but it never really worked very well you know peter's idea sort of launched my career really but intruder which is the first track on the album it has that sound on it is that phil or playing those drums that's phil playing drums yeah that's phil playing the drums so was it later on then he would have said yeah i fancy a bit of that on my record yeah well because of that intruder and the other two or three tracks that Phil played on. He was contemplating making his own record at that time because he was writing stuff that he thought wouldn't fit with Genesis and he was getting divorced and all that. And so I got a phone call six months later from Tony Smith, I guess it was, the manager, saying Phil's doing going to do a solo album and um, he'd like you to do it if you, if you, if you were interested. So I went, oh, Christ, yes. Can I ask why he asked you and not you and Steve Lillywhite as a team? Well, I mean, not not dissing Steve in any way at all, but I think Phil thought that it was me that sort of, not invented, but sort of was the sort of engineering brains behind that. And I think Phil 
also, if you look at the credits, it's produced by Phil Collins, assisted by Hugh Padgham. Right. Um, I mean, words are just words. I mean, you know... Words matter, Hugh, words matter. Well, they, they do matter. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was still delighted because it was my first sort of full production with a heavyweight artist. Because, I mean, Phil was... You know, he hadn't done a solo career up there up to that point. He was still the singer in Genesis and well known as one of the best drummers. So for me, it was like manner made in heaven. You probably didn't know what you were going to get, though, did you? Because he was playing in Brand X as well. Well, so, so I was going to say, because the thing about his first, especially that first solo, all of them, was it was ref- clearly reflective of the music he was listening to rather than the music he'd been making for. So you have this dream list of amazing kind of R&B and, and fusion musicians coming in the studio, didn't you? They were yeah. Fire Horns and... Um, uh, what's his name from Weather Report? Oh, God. the bass Alfonso player. Johnson. Alfonso, Alfonso Johnson. Yeah. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, we were like pigs in shit because <laughs> either he or we felt that we could just ask anybody we wanted to work on the record, including the Earth, Wind and Fire Horns. And, and when we went over to L.A. to record them, Maurice White, who was the, the wow. you know, leader or, yeah. or head of Earth, Wind and Fire, he hated us. He came down the studio and I remember there was a really bad atmosphere and he did not like his guys playing with oh. white honkies. Really? And it just shows what 40 years ago was like. The radio stations in America didn't know what to do because horns were thought of as being black music, generally speaking. Well, it's interesting you say that because when we did chart number one the same year and we used the horn section from Beggar & Co to come and play on that record... And it was quite an outrageous thing to do. Uh, it felt odd. And we went to New York with it. And we got called in to Kiss FM to do an interview. When we arrived, it was like, oh, you're white. I'm, you know, we've made a mistake. Absolutely. That division was very, very apparent in those days between black music and white music. Well, in America, certainly much more, I would yeah. say. I mean, it was one thing having Raph Ravenscroft come down and play sax on your song, like, you know, Baker Street or... Actually, we had Ronnie Scott come down and play a solo on Phil's first album as oh, well. Fantastic! But having a horn section was very much a sort of black thing. Well, they ah. called the Phoenix horns. They called, weren't they? Aren't they called the Phoenix horns? Phoenix horns, yes. They had a mad arranger that went with them. Tom Tom eighty four. <laughs> we had some. Honestly, we had... sounds like a Twitter handle, like years before. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Tom, I guess he's still alive. I don't know. He's a little black guy with glasses. I mean, it's, he, you know, they were all originally from Chicago that eventually went out to L.A. But he was this funny, funny guy. And Phil, he would um, hum or stutter the, how he wanted the horn parts to sound on that record. So he would, we would be playing a song and Phil would be going, da-da. How he wanted the horns to play, and so Tom Tom would then write that into music. I mean, it was really good, but actually recording it was a nightmare sometimes because we were still doing analog. You know, if you remember Earth, Wind, and Fire stuff, it was it was a yardstick. It was just wasn't it immaculate, incredible, immaculate, yeah. 
So we would have to do punch-ins, which is recording little bits at a time. You know, they would try and record it all. And if a bit wasn't quite right, you would have to what's called punch-in. And on an analog machine, it was much harder to do than digitally now. And so the sessions would get quite wrought because luckily I could read music because for my sins, I managed to get up to grade five on piano and did theory. Uh-huh. But my assistant, who's a guy called Nick Launay, who's gone on to oh, become yes, yes. quite a well-known producer himself, he couldn't read music. So I had to take over not only the engineering, but the punching in as well. And Tom Tom would go, okay, let's do the, let's, let's do the punching, let's do the punching. We would have the sheet of music in front of us and he'd mark where we wanted to get in and out. And anyway, it was really quite stressful. And after the session, you'd be literally sort of sweating and absolutely sort of gasping for a drink. And um, (laughs) so the first sessions we did over there and then on the following albums, they came over to us and Tom Tom arrived at one of the sessions jet lagged and drunk (laughs) (laughs) so you can imagine it all got really over emotional and the whole thing nearly sort of broke down into tears and oh no what in a but in a good way was it i love you or (laughs) (laughs) yeah sort of well no no it it almost got to sort of fisticuffs first and then i love you i love you (laughs) sadly i think the sax player wasn't it in the horns section he got killed by the police, didn't he? Yeah, you know, he did. He did. Very sad. In America, that's right. he was holding a, a lighter in his hand and they thought it was a gun. Yeah, 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 that's exactly what happened. You know what it's like in LA. The police, they don't really ask questions as soon as you move. Yeah. He played sax on uh, One More Night, didn't he? Did the solo on One yeah. More Night. Yeah, yeah. Going back to Phil's first album, that's still actually my favourite Phil album. But I'm not surprised. I mean, it was a groundbreaking record. It's one of the records that kind of gave birth to the 80s, if you will, you know. And we didn't make it in any commercial way at all. Mm -hmm. It was all very much sort of based around musicians and musicianship. But I wanted to know what what you... Because I mentioned Brand X. Do you remember first sort of going and listening to those demos and what you thought they might be and what they actually were? Well... Yes, because I never forget driving down to his house. It was a lovely day and I had an old MGB and I had the roof down and I was going down to his house to hear his demo. I just, I thought that I was Phil Spector, George Martin, whoever (laughs) else, all stuck together. We heard these, uh, or I heard these demos, some of which we actually used on the record because we couldn't replicate certain sounds that he was programmed off his synthesizer and his drum machine and stuff. And then I remember listening to them and then we went and played Frisbee in the garden. Do you remember? Ah, yes. How hippie-like was playing Frisbee (laughs) in the garden. We probably had a spliff or something. Because the the album was very much about his divorce, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But these didn't sound like Genesis songs. No, nor like Brand X, really. So, yeah, that's how the record happened. Because that little drum machine that famously starts in the air tonight. Yes. Is that a compu rhythm? Yeah. Is that a Roland Roland CR-78. Which is basically like the rhythm box you get in an organ. 
Exactly. Yeah. It was, I think, the second, you know, I did an interview all about drum machines about a year ago, and I've forgotten everything I said because I had to do a bit of... Um, Thank God. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you definitely want to free up hard drive space for that. You, you yeah, I think it was out. the second drum machine that Roland ever made, and we used the first drum machine ever made on Peter's third album the melt album that we were talking about larry fast had it and it was called i can't remember <laughs> and it was a kit and you had to make it and because larry was an electronic sort of expert and nerd he'd made one of these and on that song Beco, the bass oh, drum right. and the snare drum are from this very first commercially available drum machine and a magnificent bit of frip there isn't it? That yeah. is fripping full effect, that song. But given that it was a divorce album, how hard was that for Phil? Was there a sense of, was it a tough record to make for him? Because the whole point was about it being personal, wasn't it? That he had that thing that he hand wrote everything, all the label copy, literally the oh, catalogue yeah. number, everything was written by him in Biro. Yeah, in that sense, he wanted to be absolutely, he's not a control freak. I mean, he, he well, I suppose he is in a way, but... The thing with Genesis is that, and still is to a large extent, is you were very much what instrument you played was the only instrument you played. So Phil, I mean, he's self-taught on the piano, but he was never allowed to even touch a keyboard in Genesis. So, you know, drums was the only thing and vocals, obviously. And, yeah, I can't um, imagine Tony Banks allowing that. <laughs> They don't have the same approach to bass, where it's basically whoever's got a hand free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think Phil making his own record, choosing other people, being able to play piano. I mean, he was quite sort of basic on the piano, but, you know, often basic is very effective, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And he felt liberated, I think, very much liberated, even though he loved Genesis. And as we know, there were parallel careers going on for a long time until... Or three. I mean, there was a lot of juggling there, wasn't there? <laughs> you got yeah. Genesis, Phil and Michael and Mechanics. I always felt yeah. that that album was really influenced by his work with John Martin, actually. You know, I remember seeing Phil oh, yeah. doing um, Sweet Little Mystery on, on the Old Grey Whistle Test with John Martin. And that sound, that's actually what Phil was about to write. Did that ever come up? No, but now you mention it, I think that's a very good point. I loved John Martin. I really yeah, did. I mean, do, yeah. even before I met Phil, Solid Air and all, you know, those albums from the early 70s. Amazing musician. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. After Phil's first album, was it just the floodgates opened? Everyone wanted you to produce their record yeah well it was really i mean god after peter's album as well both you know kate right. bush got me to do some stuff with her what did you do with kate well i did basically backing tracks three backing tracks on her album um what's it called that had sat in my lap on it oh Ooh, um don't, ah, don't oh, test me a brain freeze this is so clearly getting edited out yeah, this is going to get edited out. <laughs> the Dreaming. Oh, The Dreaming, of course. And Kate came down and did backing vocals on a couple of tracks, Just on Frontier and stuff like that, on Peter's record. Oh, that's, oh, no, I know she's credited. That's right, yeah. Yeah, she was obsessed with Peter. And it was a love fest, you know, literally, as well as, you know, music. And... She just thought that Peter was the dog's bollocks. So. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, what different places they came from, how they ended up on a very similar musical path, didn't they? Yeah, well, absolutely, and that's why she wanted me to work on The Dreaming. Ah. But it was quite difficult because she was determined to sort of produce it, and I was starting to produce stuff as well. And I was working on my weekends with her because I was doing something else. And then I got a call from the police to go and do their stuff. And so I had to sort of make an excuse to stop working with Kate that was, if I remember right, was okay, but maybe a little bit difficult at the time. Oh, really? What, working with her was difficult or making the decision was difficult? Well, both. I mean, gosh, (laughs) she was probably only 21 or 22 then, you know, and she was on her third album, I think it was, at least her third album. But she was very opinionated and she didn't sort of realise... Things like if you've got four guitars playing different things all in the same register, that you might not hear them very well. And she goes, yeah, I can't hear the guitars, you know. And you, you try and explain it and she wouldn't listen. It was sort of slightly frustrating. It was all right, but slightly frustrating. And so that was my Kate Bush career. Well, that makes me ask you the question about your role as producer and how much it is an an arranger as well and how complete are songs when you start to work on them and um you know are you saying i don't think a keyboard should go here i think a guitar should go here etc well yes to an extent i mean if i'm working with someone like sting he he doesn't have sort of much idea or interest in the way i know it sounds weird of sonics and, wow, that and, does and, sound weird. Yeah. I mean, so he would sort of leave how the record's sort of sounding. He would give, you know, an idea of how he didn't used to make demos much on the solo stuff anyway, nor with the police either. And he'd sort of leave it to me. For instance, if we were mixing a song, he wouldn't come down till the end of the mix. Whereas with Phil Collins, he'd be wanting to be involved right from the get-go of a mix, you know, sometimes too involved, really. It's quite good to be able to (laughs) step back and be more objective. So, you know, everybody works in different ways, which is fine. But um, 
I can't remember what you, you were well, asking. Yeah, about, your, about being involved in arrangements. Are you, do you tend oh, yeah. to build the song well, in the studio and then kind of attempt different ideas and see if they work? And it's made that way rather than just um, a band playing right from the beginning. Well, yes, but what I will not get involved with is on a musical basis. I might be involved in the arrangement saying, well, maybe we go straight back into the second verse after the chorus rather than having a long reintroduction or something. But I'm not going to say, oh, I think if you changed that chord to that, that would work you know, better and so on. And the reason mostly for me not getting involved musically is, you know, respect for the people I'm working with, which luckily for me was usually top tier people. I mean, I'm not going to tell Sting how to write a song. The only time, <laughs> this is a funny story and I have said it before, but when I was doing an album with Paul McCartney in um, 86 and we had one song and it had this long guitar solo in it that was, I think, made up of two guitar solos. And it was a long section. And I said to Paul one day, I wonder if we actually ought to sort of cut it down to eight bars rather than 32 bars. And he looked at me and he said, how many hit songs have you ever written, Hugh? (laughs) (laughs) And I felt like crawling into the nearest hole (laughs) <laughs> oh, he must have got him on a bad day. He's a very nice man yeah. normally. <laughs> he is, yeah. What album was that? It was called Press to Play. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't really a very good album, to be honest. Oh, well. He wrote a lot of the songs with Eric Stewart from 10CC. Oh. And I was a huge fan of 10CC, and especially Eric Stewart, because... He was an engineer as well. And, and do you remember all those songs, I'm Not In Love? Oh, Mandy yeah, Fly Me, Art For Art's Sake. Yeah, we've had Lol Cream on. Oh, yeah. yes, yeah. of course. I, yeah. Yeah. I never listened to that one. I must go back and listen. Oh, to no, you, you'd enjoy it, I think. Yeah. yeah. But I remember walking out of the townhouse one evening. I was working with Phil Collins on second or third album, it was, of his. And the demos were sent down to me on a cassette And I remember being really excited going back to my flat and putting on this cassette. And I was really underwhelmed. And I thought, oh, no, it it must just be me and that I'm just not getting the songs because it was basically the two of them playing acoustic guitar, sort of almost like round a campfire sort of thing. But have you ever gone into the studio with whoever you're working with and being like, oh my God, what is this? And what am I going to do about it? You know, whether it's coming up with a bass line or guitar part or whatever. And I've been in the studio a few times where I've been going, oh shit, what am I going to do? And somehow it sort of works out all right in the end. You wangle your way around it somehow, either by hook or by crook. Anyway, I remember being really underwhelmed with these songs and I just thought, well, it must just be me because how can Paul McCartney and Eric Stewart together not be coming up with some really fantastic stuff? And I still think 
it's not fantastic stuff 40 years later. It's a shame that you ended up playing on the one maybe that wasn't great because, you know, the guy's done a few good ones. Funnily enough, I remember David Gilmore told me years ago, he got together with Eric Stewart to do some because he was such a fan of his writing. And he said, it just didn't work because we're too similar. Uh, and I think, you know. I, I also yeah. think so, that co-writing is a very different thing. It can yeah. really sap, you can end up with this awful compromise. Yeah. But, but listen, one of the greatest writers is certainly Sting. And that police yeah, album that you made, Ghost in the Machine was the first one. Yeah. I remember it coming out and it was again, it had so much of your flavour on it. It wasn't just the three piece anymore. You know, there was keyboards on there. There were sequences. There was depth to the production. Was yeah. that something that you were inputting? Well, yes, to an extent. I mean, I got the gig basically through XTC and um, they used to tour quite a lot in those days together. And um, one day Sting and Andy Partridge were on a bus together and Sting said, do you know what? We're looking for a new producer because we just want to change. And also the whole thing with the police in those days, Miles Copeland was the manager and it, everything was done as cheaply as possible. I and mean, they were amazing, those first three albums. Yeah. I think they just wanted a change. And also it was around that time in the late 70s, early 80s, that synthesizers and particularly polyphonic synthesizers were just coming out. So there was a load of new gear, drum machines, sequencers, synthesizers. And when you're a big band, you always just get given stuff, don't you? Yeah, when you can afford it, you get given it for free. What a joke. I know. Phil Collins always used to say that. He said, I could never afford a drum kit when I was young. Now I've made some money. I'm just being given drum kits all the time. And he never used to accept them for that reason as well. <laughs> it's rather ironical, isn't it? So... I had met Sting on a session at the townhouse before as well. So I just got the phone call and said, will you turn up in Montserrat and work with the police? <laughs> I'd never met Andy before. I would met Stuart because he lived just down the road in Shepherd's Bush. But basically I arrived in Montserrat with just a whole bunch of Sting's sort of rough demos the band and all this new gear. It was all Oberheim, mostly Oberheim oh, right. that we had. Do you remember? And this is George Martin's air studio in Montserrat. George um, Martin's air studios. Did you watch Under the Volcano, that documentary? Did either yeah, of you watch absolutely. that? It's brilliant. Yeah, I was in it for a few seconds. Ah, OK, there's a little bass player rumour that I'd like to get sorted out, which is that apparently Sting had this thing, certainly on Every Breath You Take. But that, hang on, but that's, which wasn't on this album, though, Every Breath That wasn't on this album, but I, I think it might have been on many songs anyway, which was the reason for his bass sound was that he would play a bass, but then there would be loads of electric or just double basses bowing underneath it. No, it wasn't, it wasn't bowed. Oh, it was double bass, but he would just play, you know, minims or root notes, right? Just to sort of flesh it out. And the story was like about eight tracks of it or something. No, no, no. Right. no. There you go, bass players of the world. This is the horse's mouth. Dispelled. Yeah, no, no. The one thing I do remember a lot about is bass, really, partly because Sting's uh, amazing bass player, and also. He always he used to play in the control room with me. Generally, on that first Ghost in the Machine album, he had one of those, which I don't really like, Steinberg basses. 
Steinberger, yeah. Steinberger, sorry. Very odd-looking carbon fibre thing, which didn't have very much base on it. And I think it might have been my idea to overdub this double bass that he had, which was nicknamed. All their instruments were generally nicknamed something, and this double bass was called Brian. And it was an electric double bass that had a, a sort of metal pipe as the outside bit. If you see what I mean? Oh, yeah. for the, Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. He also had a, a a really nice old Fender jazz bass. Oh, oh, jazz. Okay, because he's got his precision, his nineteen fifty one precision, which he still uses a lot. Yeah, that's the one that looks like a Telecaster. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The original bass he had was a a very old jazz bass. Oh, okay. But he seemed to like. I don't know, he he liked the look of the Steinberger. We all did, that's what I played, we all did. Yeah. I said what was great about the Steinberger, because it was a tiny little stick thing, and you carried it in like a little gun bag, and what was brilliant was that it never left your side. It went in the overhead locker on planes, and it was indestructible. You could put it between two chairs and jump up and down on it. I didn't, but... If, if you've noticed, I've not spoken for a while. In fact, I think I <laughs> no, nodded sorry. off at one point. Poor old Gary. <laughs> I nodded just... off. Say one last thing on the bass tech for any bass freaks who are listening. I'm certainly not going to say no. Well, everything used to go through a little boss chorus pedal. The, oh, no, I thought, no, the Dimension D. No, no, no. Oh, okay. It was a boss light blue chorus yep. pedal. CE2, the CE2. And the knobs were set at 10 to 2. Also, he didn't have a bass amp. Never, ever went through a bass amp. It was always just DI'd. But I think, Gary, I think everything you ever did went through a boss chorus as well, didn't oh, it? So come on, you're God. in, you're in oh, on I this. Just can only, I can only apologise. You're part of the problem, mate. The, <laughs> what they really want to know about is was Stuart and Sting beating the shit out of each yeah, other? Exactly. <laughs> because I think that probably happened on the next album, didn't it? When you, it when did, you it, did. It happened more on the second album. Yeah, I mean, they had had physical confrontations. There was a famous physical confrontation at a gig in the south of France where Sting and Stuart got into a real rough and tumble and Sting actually cracked one of Stuart's ribs and he couldn't play. And the great thing with the police is their roadies could all substitute for their boss's instruments. Oh, for the sound checks. They would oh, have they're done all that, understudies. Yeah. They were all understudies. <laughs> and, and Stuart's roadie was a guy called Jeff, who was a fantastic drummer. And so he ended up playing the gig because it was like happened at sound check, this punch up. And so they couldn't um, not do the gig. So they got Jeff dressed up like Stuart and made sure the lighting guy didn't put any follow spots on him and did the whole gig <laughs> and nobody noticed. <laughs> But when you did Synchronicity, was it tough for you in the studio with the sort of atmosphere? To be honest, it's so weird because it's it really is one of you know one of my favourite records and a great record. I'm not blowing my own. Well, every breath it. you take, and very successful. And it was. It's a classic album, Hugh. You can blow away, mate. Okay, well, thank you. But it was unbelievably painful to make at times. I mean, really, really. I, I remember ringing up my manager at one point and sort of almost crying down the phone saying, I can't take this anymore. Because every time I tried to sort of stop their Barneys, they would just turn around to me and say, fuck off, you don't know us at all, you know. I'd only worked with them for like probably six or seven weeks on the first album. 
And then they'd gone off on tour and come back and we started the second album. And after two weeks in the studio in Montserrat, we literally didn't have anything to play at all. And there was a crisis meeting where Miles Copeland, the manager, was flown over. He hated Montserrat, but he just, you know, he hated sort of any place that wasn't London or New York, basically. So he was never around. He flew over and we had a crisis meeting about whether we were going to carry on or split up the band there and then. And luckily, uh, the decision was made to carry on. But I mean, it was really horrible to start with. And then we sort of got down to it. But I mean, even things like Every Breath You Take, if you listen to it, it's all made up of overdubs on drums. The bass drum is from the Oberheim DMX, I think it was called. You know, every time Stuart played, he wanted to play something to show off because he's a fantastic drummer, you know. I mean, you know, the band is one of the best three-piece bands ever. And he's a virtuoso, but he didn't like to sort of not be virtuoso. And as with everyone and every band, you've got to come to compromises sometimes. It was terribly difficult just to get him to sort of overdub because that's what it was the stuff that ended up on on the song and then we moved to canada after a bit and did some overdubbing and mix there and stuart and sting didn't like to be in the same room together so in the morning sting would go off skiing because this studio is just by a ski resort stuart would come in in the morning and want to sort of try overdubbing things and then lunch would happen and then sting would come in and stuart would go out skiing And so one day Sting came in and he said, what the fuck's that? And we're listening to Every Breath You Take and Stuart had put on what I call one of those sewing machine high hats. (laughs) Uh, So Sting, what the fuck's that? And I go, well, that's Stuart made me record. (laughs) Made me do it. (laughs) (laughs) Bigger boys came. He made me do it. He made me do it. And Sting said, well, I hate it. Get rid of it. And I said, well, don't you think we should sort of, you know, being the jolly sort of diplomat, don't you think we should talk about it with Stuart first? No, don't. I want you to wipe it now. And so I said, uh, well, okay. And of course, we're on analog machines then. So when you wipe something, it literally disappeared forever. Whereas nowadays you would just take the hi-hat off the playlist or whatever if you're doing Pro Tools. And so he literally came over and stood by the tape machine while he made me put that track into record and, and wipe it. So then the next day, Stuart comes in, where's my hi-hat gone? So there would be a big Barney then. And I said, well, look, you know, I am sort of the producer and it is Sting's song. He wrote this song and I happen to agree with him that I don't think it needs that hi-hat. And so that was sort of made a tension between me and Stuart then as well. So, you know, it just went from difficulty to difficulty. And I just remember being so relieved when we all left. But just to flash back a bit, because I think that is one of the greatest songs ever written and recorded. Beautiful song. And your impression, your memory of first hearing it and how it evolved in front of the band? Well, I first heard it as a demo in London. Sting was working in in a little studio 
called Utopia Studios. Do you remember Utopia Studios? Oh, yeah. yes, Primrose I Hill. remember Utopia. In Primrose Hill. And they had a little demo room there, and Sting was there and invited me down and, and Miles, and I think Sting's roadie was there. And we listened to the song, and it was Sting playing that guitar riff that Andy made on an organ. Oh, wow, with the minor ninth sound, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was it was Sounds on a, like an organ sound, and it sounded like a hit then. And I remember Miles, you know, he had this very gruff American voice. He said, "That sounds like a hit. If ever I heard one, Hugh, that's up to you now to make it a hit." And it was like, oh, <laughs> oh. And I have to say, in all my career, I've very rarely heard a song that you go, "That has got to be a hit." You know, mm-hmm. and so we took it from there, and we tried it in Montserrat in all sorts of different ways, reggae-fied police version, you know, all sorts of different ways, and we ended up doing it how we ended up doing it. And as I said before, it was all done with basically overdubs. Because guy, but- don't you think just like the drum sound that he invented earlier, which changed so much of the eighties, that arpeggiated guitar sound became so ubiquitous after that. I mean, I remember, yeah. you know, John Waits missing you. All of us, yeah, me, yeah. everybody. We had to have that arpeggiated chorusy sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of course. It, and it, the, the Roland Space Echo had a lot to do with that as well. It? Well, it was mostly the the Roland JC One Twenty chorus. Amp. Oh, co- oh, yes, the jazz chorus. The jazz amp. chorus. Yeah, look at Which, you two. That's a guitar amp that everyone used to. Gary, I bet you have one. I bet you had a JC One Twenty at some point. I did, yeah. I mic'd up the speaker because only one speaker was chorus. So one was straight, the other was chorus. And I mic'd up the two speakers with close mic. And then we double tracked it. And I put the stereo the other way around, if you see what I mean, the left, right, the other way around. So it gave this sort of wide thing. But you know, the funny thing with that, which Andy came up with, you know, Puff Daddy uh, lifted it. And there was a whole... That's right. I'll be missing you, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, poor old Andy, the settlement was that Sting took 100% of the publishing for it, and Andy got literally nothing. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's not right. That's not right. Yeah, it's a difficult world. Of course, you, I have to remind you that Sting wrote that riff on the keyboard that you heard on the original yeah, he demo. Did. But it was Andy's interpretation of it and the sound and everything. I mean, I suppose in theory, I should have got something for it as well because they lifted it lock, stock and barrel, didn't they? Guy, we can't let him go without talking about Bowie. He did Bowie as well. He did no, the Tonight right, yes. album, which God, gets, like? it gets frowned on a bit. But Oh, funny enough, at the same studio in Canada. Oh. Yeah. Well, Tax reasons, clearly. <laughs> yeah, partly tax reasons. Yeah. Well, yes, no, it was. That was why we were there with the police. <laughs> Actually, David didn't like the studio because it was a bit in the middle of nowhere and he couldn't sort of get out. In You know, he loved New York. And Iggy and, Pop uh, was hanging around the studio the whole time, he wasn't came, he? No, not a lot. He came for like a week. I mean, the album, it's very interesting. I mean, I could talk about the Tonight album for a long time, but basically he was forced back into the studio after the success of Let's Dance. He'd done a big tour. He'd become a big star. He doesn't write on the road. So he came back from the tour. The record company said, you've got to go into the studio. He was meant to go into the studio with Bob Clearmountain, who had engineered the Let's Dance album with Niall Rogers. Mm -hmm. 
David, being cheap, didn't want to use Nile again because I guess he didn't sort of want to pay him. And <laughs> he used Derek Bramble, didn't he? Yeah, who was the bass player in Heatwave. He he hadn't oh. produced a bloody suet pudding before, let alone a David <laughs> Bowie album. Well, that's what he was attempting to do then, obviously. With <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Bob couldn't do the record because he was already, he used to do all Bruce Springsteen stuff and he was already booked yeah. to do a Bruce Springsteen record. And I was great friends with Bob, so Bob rang me up and he said, you know, do you want to go and engineer the David Bowie album? So I've said, well, of course, even though I was doing all productions at the time, you just wouldn't turn down, I wouldn't have turned down the offer to have a cup of tea with David Bowie, let alone engineer an album. So I went up up there and we started, but the, it was all covers basically, apart from a couple of songs. And it never really recovered from that. And then it didn't really work out with Derek Bramble. So we took a break and I got rung up by David and, and said, could you finish the album with me? Which is why I get a sort of production credit on it. But it was too late because David had got sort of not bored of it, but well, he was slightly bored of it. We had a few quite good songs that never got finished, which was why Iggy came up to the studio to try and finish ah. them, which we did on, on one song, but not on others. Because Tonight is an Iggy song, isn't it? That yes. Bowie did with Tina Turner. Yeah, that was a cover in the sense that yeah, it was yeah, already, yeah, yeah. you know. From Lust for was, Life. Yeah, exactly. And so anyway, to cut a long story short, it was a bit frustrating for me because I felt I was sort of, I know it's a horrible word to use, but I felt I was sort of polishing a turd in a way. And... Um, well, I think and, in retrospect, "Loving the Alien" is a great track. It's one of it's one of David's it's great, yeah, beautiful great, songs. Yeah. He was really, I mean, I don't know if it's my fault in a way to try and sort of make it a bit more. There's a demo that you can hear if you go onto YouTube or something that that's quite good. But he was really, really not happy with it at the end of the day, and he would give interviews. I found it a bit upsetting in a way because he was really, really anti it but two or three years ago there's a box set of david stuff from the 80s i think there's three box sets there's mm. one from the 70s one yeah. from the 80s one from all of that and do you know what the guy who i did it with called nigel reeve from the record company i know nigel yeah yeah he's yeah, a really nice really good guy and he said i think it's a great album and then you know we compared it to some of the stuff he did later on in the 80s and early 90s, which I think really was substandard, and it made Tonight's album look really good. But saying that, I don't want to finish talking to you without saying that he was undoubtedly the best singer I ever worked with, I think. Um, God only knows get some bad press from various biographers, but I think his voice is incredible on God only knows. I, uh, I love that version that he pulled out. But you know what? He told me his voice, that tone of his voice that he uses sometimes is a total, and you'll understand this the second I say it, it's a cross between Scott Walker and Anthony Newley. Newley, Newley. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anthony Newley and Scott Walker. And he said, I've stolen it from both of them. That's that voice of mine. Right. And I thought that was so cool. Is he a one-take yeah. singer, David? Was it? Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons he, we kind of fell out with Derek in a way, because Derek 
would keep saying to David, oh, you need to sing it again because of this or that. And one day at lunchtime, Derek wasn't there. I said, look, I'm really embarrassed sitting next to Derek because whenever you sing, it just sounds perfect to me. I can't, you know, I just don't understand why you're being asked to sing it again. And he's not used to singing it more than once or twice sort of thing. He's that good a singer. Anyway, I do want to say that David was one of the nicest blokes I ever worked with. Mm -hmm. And even though it might not have been the best album in the world, he was absolutely fantastic. He was really, really nice to me. We collaborated again a little bit on some stuff on um, Tin Machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometime after that. And um, he really was the most delightful person. But can you imagine producing someone like David now and a producer would just put him through an auto-tune? They would tidy up all those inflections and those slurs and take the one take and just turn it into everything else. And really, you know, how do you feel about the way production has gone these days? Oh, it's, it's, well... Probably a can of worms there. Yeah, it is a can of worms. (laughs) I mean, the one thing you can't change is change, isn't it? And um, it's just different. That's all I can say. And some stuff hip-hop stuff or whatever i absolutely love there's no way i could produce it myself but you know i love listening to stuff and i'm so happy in my own skin because nowadays i just do jazz stuff and i'm involved in this little jazz label called gearbox records we're based down at Taliard studios in king's cross and we're obsessed with sound quality we release everything on vinyl as well and we have our own bands that we sign. We also release tapes of people like Thelonious Monk that we found a, a recording of oh, a few wow. years ago Fantastic. that have never wow. been released and recorded in a club in Copenhagen just a year or so wow. before he died. And so I love working with these jazz bands and musicians because they're A, unbelievably good musicianship, B, we can make a record in five days, including mixing. And C, there's generally not vocals. <laughs> it makes life a hell of a lot easier. And um, and it's a completely different sort of genre for me. So I'm, I'm, you know, the sort of thing that I kind of do or did isn't particularly, I don't know, popular now i suppose i don't know affordable or affordable yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, you know we're gonna have to say goodbye to you hugh but you know without mentioning all the genesis albums that you made and the massive hits you had with those and and further phil collins records and and so much and xtc of course and the mcfly number ones that i played on oh Oh, yeah (laughs) english settlement the xtc album we could talk for hours about that too there is so much out there everyone just has to google hugh padgham to see what he produced because there's some masterpieces not just of production but of musical arrangements i think well thank you very much for having me well we ought to do another one (laughs) (laughs) we will yeah absolutely it might be your least popular one (laughs) i don't think so i don't think so hugh just a bit in the middle about bass guitars Oh, shut up. <laughs> you can edit that out. <laughs> Just one, something for the bass players. Oh, dear, look, she's getting all yeah, gruff. I'm, I'm all choked up. I'm all choked up. <laughs> Thanks, Hugh. Hugh, a delightful speech to you, mate. Thanks for joining us, Hugh. <laughs> Thank you Thanks, very much, Hugh. Gary. Really nice to see you. By the way, I loved your programme on Sky Arts the other day. Oh, thank you so much. 
It was really good. I really enjoyed it. And Guy was in that too, playing bass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lovely to see Rack Studios. Yeah, yes, wonderful studio. Rack. Bye, okay. bye, bye, Hugh. Okay, cheers. Guy, I feel like we missed loads of albums, all those sort of Abercamps so and you know the Genesis sort of hits that he, he made. And uh, there was too much to talk about. He was giving us lovely deep dives. And I think what's nice for our listeners is they're probably going to get stuff they wouldn't have gotten other interviews he's done. Yeah, I think so. And I just like the fighting bits, really. And uh, Well, that's what we all wanted. You know, of course, fight, 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 but fight. But I think the most surprising thing, out of all of those anecdotes, and I'm trying to visualise the conversation between Paul Weller and Peter Gabriel. Well, the story I heard at the time was that apparently the record company came down to see Peter. And, of course, they were shocked that there was this music with no symbols and all that come and they sort of had to go well, we're not sure about the direction you can go and apparently there was this thing of Peter was like in a way to show the record company I do what I want apparently he just went down the corridor to where the jam were and said Paul will you come and play on my record Paul went oh yeah alright then came back and said I've got Paul Weller playing on it <laughs> and then booked oh. him to play it was just just as a show of strength to the record company. But in Peter's posh voice, of course. I've got Paul yes, Weller. Cool. Uh, uh, would you mind awfully? Uh, uh, the, um. the other bit, uh, <laughs> anecdote that I heard, which we, we, we didn't mention, or he didn't mention, which I'm going to say anyway, is that um, when they played in the air tonight to Armour Ertigan, who's the head of Atlantic Records, hugely famous record executive. Ertis Armageddon, as Mick Ralph used to call him. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. When he played it to Armour Ertigan, who was the, um, the head of uh, Atlantic Records, Armour couldn't believe there was just the drum machine at the beginning of this song, and that was it. He was listening to Phil... Collins' first solo album. Oh, yeah. It's a drum machine. And he said, you've got to put some drums on this because otherwise I'm not going to release it. And yeah. if you go to the video version of In The Air Tonight, it's different to the one on the album. The single has toms playing all the way through before the big toms come in, right from the beginning. And the album version doesn't. There you go. Ah. And you think I'm dull. <laughs> we'll see you next week for some more... Uh... <laughs> Somnambulant yes. facts. Fact. <laughs> and until then, it's good night from me. And it's good night from everyone. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.